Hey friends, it's Kara Kay, and this is the Asking for a Friend podcast, a show for the woman who has questions about herself, the church, and the world. We are all asking tough questions that affect us as women in the culture that surrounds us, and we are looking for a safe space to ask them. But don't worry, I know you're only asking for a friend. Hey friends, happy podcast day. Excited you guys are here with me today. So we are in election season. It is crazy and I feel like our time together is very divided. And as Christians, we're called to love one another. But what does that actually look like when we disagree on things? So that's the question we're going to answer today. How can I love people I don't agree with? Now, I'm sitting down with Sarah Anderson, who is a native of the Washington, D.C. area. Her family comes from politics, and she is no stranger to the emotional and combative conversations that politics and religion create, which is where she got her passion to write her new book. And I'm excited for you guys to hear from her today. She also writes for the organization Orange that works to create um, partnerships with churches and families, and she is a mom of two boys. So let's get into this conversation about how to love people we don't agree with. It's election time. How does that make you feel? (laughs) (laughs) Probably like everybody else in America. Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, Do you you feel (laughs) like, and I was thinking about this, maybe it's just because we're more aware, but you did grow up in politics. And so you were Mm -hmm. probably always aware, but I feel like we are so, so divided right now. Mm -hmm. Like it feels crazy and it's probably always been that way, but goodness, it just feels very, very tough right now. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't know that it's always been that way. I I think it has to a degree, Mm. but I think that there were times when you would find people running for office who one of their main talking points was, I want to work across the aisle. Like I Mm -hmm. want to be able to partner with people on the other side. And now you don't hear people saying that at all. It's almost true. the exact opposite. Yeah. Like I'm not willing to I don't want to work give in yeah. on these ideas. Yeah, that's So I'm going to stand strong. And so I do feel like there is a lot more division now yeah. um, than there used to be. Plus, I think the fact that so much of our news is online and so much yeah. of our lives are online. That is very it true. It is very easy to live in echo chambers mm-hmm. where everybody thinks like we do and we become surrounded by people who are only like us. Yeah. And so I think that creates a greater division because we're not exposed to people yes. who think differently. I think than that's us. such a good point. So Facebook, I hate Facebook. Sorry, yes. sorry, Facebook, yep. don't shut me down. <laughs> I feel like it's like Big Brother listening in. But I don't like Facebook, but I keep my Facebook because that's the place that I can hear differing mm-hmm. opinions because it's mm-hmm. people from all walks of life. It's the friends I grew up with, the people from college, the people from church, you know, it's like this mixture of people. But then I kind of keep my Twitter as my echo chamber on purpose (laughs) when I need like space that I'm like, I just need to hear from some people that are like me, you know, that that I can go there. But talk to me about that. So what do you, what does it look like for people to really create those spaces where we hear from people from both Mm -hmm. sides and can create some, you know, common ground there and have good conversations. Yeah. Well, I I love it. I think what you're doing is a great step and great place to start. I do the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. I would say, um, I I don't know that Twitter, I 
I probably have a little bit of both on Twitter. Yeah. And I intentionally started following people that I knew thought differently than me. Yeah. I don't – and then I've had to mute some of those people. Yes. But, there, <laughs> but I think that there is – I think it is important to – be exposed to people who think differently than yeah. you. And I, on Twitter, it's mostly these public, more public figures. But on Facebook, you're right. It's the people that we have encountered from all walks of life. And I think that's helpful because we have a history with some of these people or we at least have face-to-face -face relationships in some form or fashion with these people. And that helps us to see them as more than their political views. Yeah. Because I think that ultimately, that's what's getting us in trouble yeah. is that we are seeing each other only as a, a way to vote and that's it and that we aren't because we're not having the face-to-face -face interactions it's much easier to pigeonhole people yeah. and I think COVID has made that a lot harder yeah, I mean most sure. of our lives because of COVID are not being lived in person yeah. and face-to-face -face. and we are interacting on a screen and you and I know that it is much easier to misinterpret a tone or right. a, you know so what somebody is saying through a screen or just to fill in the gaps yeah. of a conversation yeah. um, and the silences or whatever that is when you're not seeing them face to face. And so I think in a weird way, COVID's amplified it, which is super unfortunate leading up to right. an election year. Right. I think it's made it a lot worse. But yeah, I think what you said is, is totally right. The intentionality of exposing ourselves to different ideas, yeah. that it's not... Um, it's not saying I'm going to change my mind about this, mm -hmm. but it's it's at least exposing you to people who don't think like you do and who are normal people. Right. They're not these you know crazy fanatics, yes. but you can see them as normal. Yeah, I think it's hard because we'll hear, you know, if someone does post an opinion about something, we assume everything about them just from yes. that one thing that they've said or one thing yes. that they've shared. I am yeah. so guilty of this. I'll see somebody oh, yeah. post something. I'm like, well... I can't be friends with them anymore. I, right. you know, it's like the things that right. go through my head. I'm like, why am I thinking this? But that really is the the issue with the single story narrative. Yeah. I saw a talk recently on, it was just a video I watched on YouTube. I think it was a TED mm -hmm. talk. Um, mm -hmm. I'll link it in the show notes. I, I'll have to send it to you, but it, it talked, she talked about this, the trouble mm -hmm. with the single story narrative yeah. where, you know, people only saw her. She was born and raised in Nigeria and then she, I can't remember if she went to the States or to England or something to go to school. And, you know, just the way people saw her, the way she saw other people and just making those assumptions. Well, you came from poverty or you mm -hmm. are this way or you don't, you know, you're not smart because you did this. And mm -hmm. so just these things that we assume about people and that just mm -hmm. puts us, you know, it's really damaging for our relationships. Yes. I know. I, I think I know exactly who you're talking about. She's a Nigerian novelist. Yes. I cannot pr I, pronounce her, her name, but I saw that yes. TED talk and it's so phenomenal. She, it is phenomenal because I think this, I think the problem with this single story narrative is the same problem with us wanting to live in binaries that mm -hmm. there, we want everything to fit really neatly into a box. Yes. And so what she's saying in that Ted talk is we lose complexities yeah. with, um, with one side of a story. And I think it's the same truth. Same thing is true with people. We're losing the complexities of people and nuances and positions and right. opinions when we only see someone as their viewpoint. But I, right. I, I'm, I'm guilty of the same thing you are. You you learn something about somebody or a policy that mm -hmm. they support or a politician they support, and you're like, I don't know how I, I can be friends with that person. Right. But 
it's really an invitation to learn to live in the tension yeah. of I don't like this about this person, mm-hmm. but I mean, let's be honest, there are things I don't like about myself For and sure. I'm fine with myself. Absolutely. So we can learn how to live in yeah. these tensions, it's uncomfortable. Yes. And it it requires more of us. Okay, for sure. so how can we disagree and not mm-hmm. like something that somebody stands for, but do that without losing our friends? Yeah. Well, I think part it starts with being able to acknowledge that we are multifaceted mm-hmm. individuals. Yeah. And so if we can give ourselves grace when it comes to um, our inconsistencies mm-hmm. for what we stand for sometimes, I think we can learn to give grace to others and and what we see, what we may see as flaws in their voting or flaws in their belief system, but knowing that that's not all that they are. Right. And I think one of the simplest things to do is to, I talk about this a little bit in, in the book of, of looking for the lowest common denominator between you and this person that we might disagree that the best way forward for this country is you know x y and z but we can agree that we want what's best for our country so can't we at least acknowledge that we have the same goal in mind how we want to go about getting there is different mm. but we want to start with what we have in common and maybe that's not politically maybe it's like you know your friendship started over bonding over something completely different a shared hobby or something stick to the things that you know are the same between you because it's not it's not just building a bridge it's reminding you of the humanity of that person that they are not just a disagreement that there is something um, tethering your relationship to each other and and it's learning to reattach those threads of relationship and not letting those fall by the wayside because of a particularly contentious election season. Yeah. Uh, It's interesting that, because I think about this and I assume, well, people who are not Christians, they're the ones that are struggling, but good grief. This is in the church. I feel like it's so, so difficult because we just assume that everyone's going to fall in the same place. Yes. We are called to love. That's what we're called to do. But what does that look like when we don't agree with people? How can we practically find ways to love people that we disagree with? Well, I think um, you're exactly right when you said this. This is a problem in church, too. Um, And I think part of the problem that got us here was assuming that Jesus would pick one political Mm -hmm. party over the other. Yeah. I think that that gets us in a lot of trouble. So, yeah. but I think a lot of us have grown up. I, I knew, I know, I grew up thinking that. Yeah. That I, um, I believed Jesus was a Republican, yeah. and I went to a conservative Christian college, and I remember walking through a dorm one night, and I saw a poster for the Young Democrats Club, uh-huh. and I was like, "There are Democrats here!" Like, I did not even think they that are was possible. Sinners, and yes, I'm like, <laughs> well, I mean, sure, they might exist, but not enough to have a club, right? And then. The, on the poster, the thing that stuck out to me the most, it said, Jesus loves Democrats too. Hmm. And I remember thinking, well, he might love them, but he probably doesn't like them yeah, as yeah. much as he likes Republicans. Sure. But it was just kind of like this moment for me where I remember thinking, oh my gosh, maybe Jesus isn't a Republican hmm. and maybe he's not this white middle class yeah. man yeah. that I imagined him to be. 
because I think when we begin to associate Jesus with a particular party, whether because and I think this happens with Democrats as yes, well. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's not just a Republican problem, but I I think when we begin to associate him with a party, we're putting him in a box yeah. and we're making him more like us than us becoming more like him. Right. And I think that that's a very dangerous place to land. So when it comes to loving people who are different than us, I think we first need to begin to understand that we haven't cornered the market on Jesus, that he is not going to fit in one political box or another. And so learning to love someone on the other side isn't condescending ourselves to them because, oh, they just don't know any better. Jesus is with us. Mm. It's saying, you know what? They might have an understanding of Jesus that I haven't arrived at yet. And I might have something to learn from them because they are seeing and experiencing Jesus in a way that I haven't. So what it's a posture, I think, of humility, really, of not coming to the table of like, I'm trying to convert your thinking. I'm trying to get you to vote like I voted or I'm trying to prove you wrong. But if you're seeing Jesus on the other side of you, then you're saying, I have something that I can learn. I haven't gotten it all figured out. And I'm I'm wanting to understand your experience because it's different than mine. Yeah. So what might you have to teach me because of that? Yeah. What does it look like as far as getting to the point sometimes I think that we do have to <laughs> cancel some friendships? Yeah. There have been times, I'll be real honest, there's been times that I have had to step away from some relationships mm-hmm. and they were based on their viewpoints on things. Mm-hmm. I think that that is something that we see and something we deal with. And I'm sure people listening are like, yeah, that's all great that we can love people like Jesus and whatever. Mm-hmm. But what about when some people's viewpoints and their stances on things actually do affect our lives on a really deep deeply personal level. Mm-hmm. For me, I have a, a, a black son who's adopted. Mm-hmm. Politics changed for me as yeah. I adopted him because I began to see how voting impacts him personally. Mm-hmm. As a white mm-hmm. woman growing up in you know middle-class America, I didn't really ever have to worry about politics because right. everything was you know created for me. And right. I, I was good, so I just didn't even have to worry about it. But now I see, oh man, these things shape the way his life will be, the things that he's able to do. And there have been relationships that I don't have anymore because of that. Would you speak to that of what you've seen and what your experience has been? Yeah, I think um, it's that is really hard because Mm. politics is personal. It is. And it is, um, it affects all of us individually. And um, you know, I think there is there's something about having an experience like you adopting a, a black son and and seeing that is going to change your life and the way that you see things and change the lens yes. that you see the world through. And not everybody is going to see it that way, but when they don't, it feels very personal yes. to you. Yes, because you're like personal. Why do you not see this? You know, and yes. I'm thinking I didn't see that ten years ago either. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Right. Well, I think that there is a distinction between um, figuring out where we have disagreements with people Mm -hmm. and differences with people and and trying to make peace with them and and not making peace with idea racist ideas or harmful ideas. Um, So I think what we need to do is is better differentiate between opposing values and just harmful values. Mm. Yeah. And there is a difference. I think the problem with right now in our current culture is that 
everything that is opposing to us feels harmful and we've labeled it as bad Mm. but that's not the case that is it certainly exists it's out there but I think we just have to become a lot more patient and understanding why certain people value certain things Mm -hmm. so um there's a, a writer um, I, th- I want to say sociologist as well. His name is Jonathan Haidt, but he has done research on um, morality foundations. Okay. And he talks about um, these six morality foundations that all humans kind of share. And um, they're, I think, care versus harm, fairness versus cheating, loyalty versus betrayal, authority versus submission, I mean, uh, liberty versus depression, all these different ideas. Mm-hmm. And he says every person and each political party and each culture values certain morality foundations over the other ones. So you might find in Eastern cultures that they are going to have a higher um, honor uh, morality Mm -hmm. foundation. In Western culture, you're going to have a higher liberty uh, morality foundation. So I think what we're finding is if you're not valuing my morality foundation, Mm -hmm. you're wrong. But Jonathan Haidt is making the point that we need all of these morality foundations represented. And even more than that, that they almost serve, we serve as checks and balances for each other, that we wouldn't want to live in a society where only one is elevated above the other. But we need to respect the differences that we have between each other because that's, that is keeping all of us in check and from letting one morality foundation to fall by the wayside. So I think what we've got to learn to see from people who are voting differently than us is what are the things, what are the issues that they're passionate about that they're voting for? Because to us, it feels like if they're not voting our way, they're voting against us. Mm-hmm. And that feels personal. Yeah. But I think in learning their stories and their and their reasonings, we're starting to we need to start to understand what is it that's motivating you? What what are you so passionate about and you believe so strongly and that that takes precedence in your life, even if I don't agree with it and I don't think that that's the best thing. I think when we learn to give people the benefit of the doubt, we're saying, I don't think that you're just out to harm me or you're out to harm somebody else. Mm-hmm. I think that you are pushing for something, even if I don't agree what it is, with what it is, I need to understand where you're coming from. Yeah. And again, that's not saying that there aren't racist people and Absolutely. racist ideas yeah. or, you know, or whatever, not necessarily race being the only one, right. but – those things are out there. I just think we can't make the assumption that if someone's going to vote a certain way, one way or the other, that we can automatically draw a conclusion about where they land morally. Yeah. We need to be able to have a conversation about what is it that they care about that got them to land where they did. Mm-hmm. That's good. Okay. So let's talk practically about yeah. those conversations. So, mm-hmm. you know, the holidays fall right yeah. after election. And I feel like that's such <laughs> a tricky time. Like, why don't we do the elections in like April when everybody's right. just, you know, good. But yeah. so we all, you know, it's just a heated time. And then we have to go sit around a dinner table with the people right. in our families that we love. How right. can we practically have some of those conversations? What would you encourage yeah. people to say? Give them some yeah. language. Because I think that's, I think that's really what we need a lot of times is just yeah. practical steps to help yeah. us build bridges and keep our relationships intact even when we disagree. Yeah. Well, I think you nailed it in that family is complicated. Yeah. And I think that there are hard conversations with friends that we can have, mm-hmm. but hard family com- hard conversations with family is a different deal. Yeah, it yeah, just absolutely. is. And I think, um, you know, I found this in my own family. I come from a very political family. Everyone is still very involved in politics. I'm the only one who's not, but I'm involved in church world. So it's like 
the other most uh, I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> it's basically politics. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we we joke about the fact that, sure, there are things that we would avoid talking about, but we both we all make our livelihood in those mm-hmm. areas. So we don't really have an option. Right. Like we have to figure out how to talk about it. Um, but one of the things that I think has helped helped us and we're not experts, we've, we fail forward in this sometimes. But um, I think one of the things that has helped us is for my parents to start to see their kids as adults. And I know that sounds very um, simple, Mm -hmm. but there is something about going to be with our families of origin and everybody kind of reverting back to their childhood selves and our parents seeing us through the lens of our, you know, or seeing us as 11 year olds again, who couldn't possibly develop their own opinions about something. So I think that understanding with family, they are there are layers of complication and that the tension we feel around politics usually isn't just about politics. There's usually something else going on mm-hmm. as there should be. I mean, we just have a history with our family. Right. So just understanding that we're going to fall back into old patterns um, that we had when we weren't healthy and we were teenagers and, you know, talking back and attitude, all that kind of <laughs> thing, just knowing that there's more going on than that um, than just the political conversation. I think it starts there. Um, but I think one of the things that my family has done, I don't, and again, I don't know that we did this on purpose, but we just kind of fe- fell into it, is we've decided not to try to make the other one into our own image. Mm-hmm. Like our idea of connecting isn't to try to convince anybody to think like we do. Mm-hmm. It's to learn to better understand why we think the way that we do. Okay. So I think that's part of it. Again, it's, it's uh, it's giving them the benefit of the doubt, and it's it's learning to ask why a lot, or saying, you know, that's really interesting that you think that. Can you tell me like how you landed on that conclusion? Right, or right. you know, I've always kind of it's it's really learning to be or trying to be a learner in the conversation mm-hmm. and being a student, and it's not asserting yourself as I have this figured out, yeah. but I want you to teach me. So help me understand is a great phrase. Right to use when it comes to these kinds of conversations. I don't understand where you're coming from. Help me understand. Yeah. How did you land where you decided to land? I think sometimes we'll find two, one of two things. Either people have put a lot of thought into where they land politically and they there really are very personal reasons for why they have landed where they are. Or they've been passed down a political party and they mm-hmm. just kind of keep voting the same thing and they don't even really aren't sure why they just know that this is the party that their parents voted in Mm -hmm. and their grandparents voted in and they're going to do the same thing so i think learning to have these conversations one is either going to open our eyes up to what these people have already thought through on their own or it's going to encourage them to start thinking on their own wait why do i think this how maybe this is harmful and i never even thought of it that way but having a posture of learning is going to learn it's going to teach people to keep their defenses down because ultimately no one's changing anybody's minds when defenses are up and this is an argument or when the objective is to shame somebody about the position they're holding Mm -hmm. but when you have the posture of curiosity you're saying i want to know why you've landed where you have i think that we find that fear is often the biggest motivator for some of our political decisions Mm -hmm. i think if you pay a lot of attention to um, the ads that you see on television for different candidates or the radio or whatever, um, it's there is a lot of fear talk of saying if this other person yes. gets into office or this person stays in office, this is what's going to happen. 
and fear is a great motivator for voting. It's a terrible personal motivator and it just is not going to bring about long-term change. But I think when we can get people to acknowledge what are you afraid of, of of voting this way or what not voting this way will do, when you start to get to that deeper level, Mm -hmm. I think there's more of a human connection there. Because on top of the fear, there's the anger and there's the aggression and there's the defensiveness. But that one layer deeper is getting to what are we so afraid of happening if if this election goes one way or the other and learning to talk about that in a more vulnerable way. Yeah, and I think that's something that translates even to social media and things like that because there's something so powerful in sharing our stories over just our opinions I can jump on Facebook and say, you should vote for this because this is right Mm -hmm. and cause a bunch of division. Or I can jump on Facebook and say, look at this picture of my son. He has changed my life. These are the things that I have learned through being his mom. And these are things I've learned about the community that he comes from Mm -hmm. and how these policies affect them. Mm -hmm. And just, you know really putting people on that level of, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Because when you're just preaching at them and saying, this is what you should do, this is right, this is wrong, where are we growing in that? We we aren't learning anything. So I love that idea of really continuing to be a learner and have that posture to be open and not just shut ourselves down when we hear, you know, oh, you're voting for that person. Well, yes, you're wrong. And I won't right. even communicate with you. <laughs> right. And and what you said is exactly right, too, of you saying, I didn't always know this. Mm-hmm. This is what I've learned. Yes. And I think that for a long time in politics, it feels like it was a liability if you ever changed your mind yes. about something yeah. that was seen as weakness. And I think we've got to start changing the narrative on that to be like, we better continue learning. And if you never change your mind about something, that to mm-hmm. me is more of a red flag than you changing your oh, mind absolutely. and flipping your position on something. So really drawing attention to the fact that I haven't always gotten this right. right. This is what I've learned so far. And and saying, I'm not trying to come across as an expert on anything. Yes. I'm just trying to share the experience that my family has had and um, what it's done for me. And maybe and you listening to my family's experience might help you understand something that you haven't understood before. Yeah, absolutely. Because when we shut ourselves down and we don't listen to stories of Mm -hmm. real people and what they experience, then we're missing the whole point of what all this is about. (laughs) Anyways, it's not just about, you know, a bunch of people sitting in a room making decisions for us. You know, we really can impact that and we should. As we wrap up, at the end of every episode, I ask my guests to share a resource, something that's helped you reframe your thinking about the world around you. Is there anything that you have maybe been reading or watching or listening to that's helped you rethink the way you look at the world lately? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned um, Jonathan Haidt's Mm -hmm. book, or Jonathan Haidt earlier, his book, The Righteous Mind. um, I read it, I don't know, two or three years ago, and it really just kind of spurred a lot of my thinking on this. Um, and, the, and the thing that I love so much about him is he writes from, he, he set out writing this book. Um, he was a very strong liberal Democrat, had no concept of understanding a Republican and the way a Republican thinks. Right. And then um, could not, I think it was after Bush's first election, 
and then he was running for re-election and when he got re-elected he he literally was like i cannot understand how this happened again how are people literally voting this way again so he set out to kind of do research on it and by the end of this book you kind of see this process he's walked through and he's like i understand based on these moral foundations where people are coming from i don't necessarily agree with the ones that they hold dear but I see them as humans valuing a different thing than I value. And they're not all crazy and they're not all wrong or evil. They're just thinking differently than I am. And I think that just helped me begin to reframe, again, the differences between what's a different opinion and what's a bad opinion yes. what's wrong thinking yeah. and his so he this book is it reads it's a very um I don't know it reads kind of like a textbook yeah in some ways. but he has a he has a a, a website a moral morality foundation's okay. website that you can go to and I just found learning where people are coming yes. from the foundations that shape their culture that shape their family that shape their their um, cultural story, their mm-hmm. ethnicity or their race, all of these things play and they're very complicated. And I think we just run the risk of losing the nuance of individuals when we try to just make them the positions they hold. Yeah. So I felt like that book, um, I talked about it a lot for like the past three years. Yeah. The number of people who actually ended up reading it, I could count on one finger. Huh. So <laughs> a lot of people were like, I don't know about that, but if you just go to the website, okay. it's a much more well, abridged I love version. That kind of, yeah, I love that kind of stuff. So I'm going to go check it out for sure. Yes. There's something yes. so fascinating about figuring out the way people work and how they're motivated. Yes. That's what, I think that's why I love like the Enneagram and all yes. those kinds of things because yep. it, it really helps me to understand people better. And it helps me yeah. step out of that single story narrative and not just seeing people in and putting people in a box of, well, you're this right. and, and really seeing where they come from. So I think that's so important. Yeah. I love that. The Enneagram, I feel the same way. Okay. What's and your I, number? I, I've I even, I'm a six. Okay. What are you? I'm a one. I could use someone in my <laughs> life right now with the homeschooling. Oh, man. <laughs> like I need a little more organization. It does, it does come in handy for all of this. Um, yeah. Being the one, because I keep my kids on top of things and organized, but. That's good. But I'm, but I'm it's also. Not, it's not looking good over here. Yeah. I have a nine wing, so that my, okay. my laziness does kick in at a point that yeah. I'm like. I'm just over it. <laughs> I know you're like, are we just fine? Can we, just, we be can just be good? Yeah, fine. we're good. Yeah. We're good. So totally good times. But you know, I, so that's interesting. I think I've thought a lot about how the Enneagram relates to the morality foundations because mm-hmm. I think there are some that relate that are more appealing to certain numbers, yeah, whatever you totally are. And I think that sense. there's a, a connection between the two. But I think you know, I'm a six, so we're we do everything out of fear, yeah. just in general. Um, but I I have heard that that most people or that sixes are like the most popular number I guess okay um interesting which I thought was super interesting when it comes to our political process Uh and how the negative campaign ads and the fear inducing like we were talking about earlier that those really play to sixes if we are afraid anyway all you have to do is show us an ad about what will happen Mm -hmm. if the other guy wins and we're like okay i'm in like just you just scared me into voting a certain way so it's effective i think for that reason interesting but and for me as a one i'm like what i mean i stress like what if i vote wrong what if i make the wrong decision then i mean the world's going to implode like (laughs) that's a lot of pressure it is a lot of pressure so ones out there in this season i feel you it's yeah it's hard yeah okay so let's wrap up with something fun tell me something that has been bringing you joy this week 
I think one of the things I discovered after being at home for the past six months um, (laughs) was how much I love the little area where we live. I mean, we've lived here for seven years, but you know, you get in the car and go to work, go to school. And so being home, I think we've just taken more advantage of the things that are close by. And so the past couple of weeks, I've gotten up before the boys start school and walked to this little local breakfast place and gotten a cappuccino and walked home. And it has restored sanity to me I have missed being alone yeah Yeah. (laughs) by myself I and I'm not a morning person but I'm like that's how I know I'm I've like COVID broke okay because I'm like I'm willing to get up early I'm in the same place I've been getting up early before my kids and I'm like what is wrong with me (laughs) yes my husband's even like I don't even know who you are anymore which I'm like I'm sorry but my husband told me one day he was like I I rolled over and saw that you were not in bed and it was really early and I was kind of worried something was wrong with you. (laughs) He's like, but I was too tired to get up and check on you. So I just assumed you were fine. I was like, no, I just have to get up early so I can have some time by myself before everyone is there. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's a lot. So I have been surprised at how a cappuccino in the morning alone has just, before it gets super hot too. That's another key. Yes, for sure. Um, so it's the little things. I think that's been the actually probably the biggest gift of the whole season has just been learning to appreciate these little little gifts. I love, along it. The I love way. it. Okay, so tell everybody where they can find you, where they can get your book, and all of these yeah. things. Um, I have a website at sarahbanderson.com is my website, and um, my book you can find on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. It's called The Space Between Us: How Jesus Teaches Us to Live Together When Politics and Religion Pull Us Apart. I love it. I haven't had time to read the whole book, but I've like yeah. skimmed it, and I can't wait to sit down and read it because I, Good. as I'm like going through it, I was like, wow, this this is perfect. We all need this. So yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, we're not, my family is not experts, but this is just kind of yeah. what we've figured I out along the way. I appreciate you sharing your experience and your stories. Yeah. It's, I think it's really important for people to hear. So you guys can be sure and go check out Sarah's new book, The Space Between Us. I'll put a link in the show notes today where you can find your own copy of that. I think this is the perfect season to be reading a book like that, to be prepared for the holidays as they're coming and so that we can have good conversations with our family and just be able to really love those that we don't always agree with. And thank you guys so much for joining me today. I'm Kara K. James, and you've just listened to the Asking for a Friend podcast. I hope that you are inspired and encouraged by these conversations to step out of the status quo and engage in conversations that matter. You can find the show notes for this episode and subscribe at karakjames.com slash podcast. I also love connecting with you on social media. I'm at karak.james on Instagram and Facebook and at karakjames on Twitter. You can also subscribe to my newsletter at karakjames.com slash newsletter. This podcast is meant to provide you with a safe space to work through the questions that you have about yourself, the church, and the world around you. Please never hesitate to reach out if you need a safe place to land. Thank you so much for listening and keep asking questions for a friend.